Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution as we hear about how things were going as the Bolsheviks tried to keep Russia turning while they were dealing with crises due to various societal factors and some aftermath of things that had been happening before the revolution even began, and how their attempts to do things have not always gone to plan and have not always necessarily been the best options. So let's continue. Social order overturned. The crime wave that began in 1917 soared during the Civil War. During the October seizure of power, there had been orgies of drunkenness as soldiers ransacked wine stores and looted shops. And in 1918, the incidence of robbery and murder in Moscow was estimated to be 10 to 15 times the pre-war level. Footnote 28. Those involved were professional gangs and bandits, who used the class war against Borzoi to enrich themselves, along with a large number of deserters and refugees. However, many ordinary people also turned to crime in the struggle to survive. There were daily reports in the press of hideous mob lynchings, Samosidi, by desperate civilians, directed against thieves and, especially, those suspected of hoarding. As one newspaper put it, quote, Mob justice occurs when there is no justice when the people has lost confidence in government and the law." End quote. These acts of violence were often spectacularly barbaric, with a strong anti-Semitic tinge. In a huge riot in Kazanskaya Stanitsa in Kuban, in early 1918, 40 presumed speculators were killed, four of whose bodies were quartered. Footnote 29. Crime was facilitated by the weakness of the militia and the widespread availability of weapons. From the first, the Bolsheviks made no bones of the fact that they were determined to stamp out crime. On the 27th of October 1917, the Military Revolutionary Committee in Moscow, having taken steps to seize stocks of weapons, warned that, quote, any attempt at a pogrom, any attempt at robbery or riot will be crushed with the most merciless measures. End quote. Footnote 30. Within weeks, the new regime restored capital punishment, and Lenin began to make minatory noises about the need for an iron hand to suppress lawlessness. At the same time, and in a rather different spirit, the incoming government abolished the old court system, seen as a linchpin of the Tsarist order and pledged to construct a system of proletarian justice. The courts, the procuracy, and the bar association were abolished, and in their place, people's courts were set up, comprising an elected judge and two lay assessors, all drawn as far as possible from the working classes. Marked leniency was shown towards criminals from the toiling classes. Juvenile courts and prison sentences for the under-17s were abolished, juvenile crime being handled by special welfare commissions. The system of courts gradually bedded down, but since a new criminal code was not drawn up until 1922, 
the people's courts continued to rely mainly on the pre-revolutionary law code, except where specific laws were repealed. Over the course of the Civil War, local commissariats of justice were gradually brought under the control of the Commissariat of Justice, and the influence of local Soviets was reduced. According to the Commissariat of Justice, in 1920, popular courts dealt with only 22.3% of criminal cases. Footnote 31. Of 582,571 people found guilty, only one-third were given prison sentences, and of these, about 40% were suspended. Footnote 32. The majority of criminal cases were dealt with by new, revolutionary organs, notably the Revolutionary Tribunals, which dealt with 35.3% of criminal cases in 1920, by the Cheka, which dealt with 30.4%, and by Military Tribunals, which dealt with 12% of cases. The military tribunals, as well as operating in the armed forces, also operated on the railways and waterways, where theft was rife. The revolutionary tribunals were initially set up, as part of the law on courts of 22nd November 1917, quote, to struggle against counter-revolutionary forces by way of taking measures to protect the revolution and its gains, and equally to decide cases of marauding and looting, sabotage, and other abuses of traders, industrialists, officials, and others. End quote. Footnote 33. Their scope soon expanded, and in May 1918, they were put in charge of prosecuting espionage, riots, pogroms in the extended Russian meaning of the term, bribery, forgery, and hooliganism. Though their rhetoric was often blood-curdling, the punishments meted out by the tribunals were generally fairly mild. By April 1918, the tribunal in Stavropol had sentenced 177 people, but the harshest punishment it had imposed was three months in jail. In the Earls, all punishments entailed service in the community. In 1919, in Vyatka province, 5% of sentences resulted in the death penalty although not all were carried out, mainly for corruption in public office. Footnote 34. As this suggests, revolutionary tribunals tried many criminal cases that should have come before the popular courts. In 1920, more than 80% of the cases they heard were non-political. Footnote 35. Indeed, in Tambov, a large part of their activities involved petty enforcement of taxes in kind on hay, meat, eggs, bread, butter, and wool. Footnote 36. In part, this was because the Cheka took charge of cases it deemed most serious. One facet of the breakdown of the old social order was the incredibly rapid way in which the privileged elites disappeared. The major assets of the nobility were, obviously, taken when peasants seized landlord estates, and capitalists lost their assets with the nationalization of industry, commerce, and banks. By autumn 1918, 90% of landowners in Oral province and about two-thirds in the Yaroslavl had been thrown off their estates, but middle-class people with property also found themselves taxed by local Soviets, 
Cheka organs, and Red Guards, who divested them of cash and valuables. Local Soviets, in particular, strapped for finance, exacted contributions and confiscations, and carried out evictions on all those they deemed to be bourgeois. On the 8th of January 1918, the Soviet Entfer demanded sums ranging from 20,000 to 100,000 rubles from local traders and industrialists, and threatened to send those who did not comply to Kronstadt, to be dealt with by the sailors. In Tambov, even bicycles were requisitioned and rumours that sewing machines and gramophones were next in line for confiscation caused some bourgeois families to entrust Soviet families with their valuables for safekeeping. In theory, all such requisitions were to be properly inventoried. A typical protocol of the Moscow Cheka for 27th of October 1919 carefully described a guarnery and a Stradivarius violin taken from Citizen Zubov, but local authorities flouted central directives with impunity. A judicial ruling that the property of a Red Army soldier could not be confiscated was overturned by the Moscow Provincial Soviet on the grounds that he was the son of a landowner. Quote, Smirnov is one of those parasites for whom there is no place in the ranks of the fighting proletariat and who should be thrown overboard from the revolution. End quote. And local authorities proved powerless to prevent the huge proportion of expropriations carried out by criminals, sometimes posing under a political banner. In Rostov-on-Don, the Brotherhood of Revolutionary Cossacks and Sailors warned of a Bartholomew's Night against the bourgeoisie under the slogan, quote, Kill all the bourgeoisie and the Jews, end quote. As the leading Czechist Latsis put it, quote, Our Russian reckons, don't I really deserve those trousers and boots that the bourgeoisie have been wearing until now? That's a reward for my work, right? So I'll take what's mine. End quote. Hit by requisitions and indemnities and forced to do humiliating work assignments, landowners, capitalists, and government officials sold what they could, packed their bags, and headed for the white areas or for emigration. In its editorial to mark the new year in 1919, Pravda mused, quote, Where are the wealthy? the fashionable ladies, the expensive restaurants and private mansions, the beautiful entrances, the lying newspapers, all the corrupted golden life, all swept away. End quote. The age-old gulf between the world of the propertied and educated and that of the common people had been wiped out in a matter of months. Between 1.8 million and 2 million fled abroad between 1917 and 1921, overwhelmingly from the educated and propertied groups. Yet a significant number of former landowners and industrialists, Tsarist generals and officers, opted to remain in Russia. A. A. Golovin, scion of an ancient boyar family, found a job in the garage of the Malye Theatre in 1921. Yet his son managed to get a place at the Moscow Arts Theatre School and became famous for his film portrayals of Stalin. Sergei Golitsyn, son of Prince M. V. Golitsyn, managed to get into a higher literature course and became a famous children's writer. 
His mother and other aristocratic ladies formed an embroidery cooperative whose products were sold abroad. Footnote 37. At the end of 1927, there were still 10,756 former landowners in the RSFSR who lived on their estates, having been granted a portion of land during the land redistribution. But their days were numbered. Footnote 38. Typical was Maria Livinskaya, widow of a railway company director who lived in Kozelski County in Kaluga province with her wastrel son Sergei and her servant Avdataya, who had three children, the youngest fathered by Sergei. At land redistribution, she had been allowed to keep the house and orchard and her son and Avdataya had each been given the standard allotment of 4.4 hectares. In a scene that might have been taken from Chekhov, we are told, quote, The rose garden, which once boasted 35 different types of rose, is now thick with nettles and burdock, and the local peasants tramp through the orchard on their way to the fields. End quote. Footnote 39. These former people, a term once applied to criminals but now used to describe these remnants of the Ancien Régime, did their best to conceal their origins and fought shy of politics. Yet despite being reduced to the humblest of circumstances, they were viewed with deep mistrust by the regime, seen as a potential fifth column for any white guard restoration. For the multifarious middle classes, the revolution brought a sharp diminution in privilege, although opportunities to adapt to the new order were fairly plentiful. See figure 5.1. While Lenin despised the intelligentsia, he was quick to see that the revolution could not survive without knowledgeable, experienced, business-like people, and he insisted that they should be paid for their skills and that their authority should be respected. Doctors, dentists, architects, and other professionals continued to practice privately. In industry, technical specialists, spetsi, remained relatively privileged. Their authority as engineers and administrators was upheld and they were paid relatively high salaries. It was not unusual for industrialists, especially those who had been members of the regulatory organs for industries such as textiles, leather, and tobacco, to end up as members of the Glavki, the industrial branch boards of the Supreme Council of National Economy. A white professor who reached Omsk in autumn 1919 was surprised to see so many former owners of leather factories sitting on the board of the leather industry. Footnote 40. Former merchants might end up working in the Soviet supply organs. D.A. Diakov, owner of a large trading company in Nikolskaya Township in Kursk province, became its chairman when it was turned into a cooperative in 1918. He later served in the provincial food commissariat of Kursk, living all the while in one of his former houses. For the lower middle strata, with education, there were plenty of jobs in local Soviets and commissariats as clerks, secretaries, and minor functionaries, and this entitled them to a second-grade food ration. Responsible Soviet officials qualified for the first grade. Such petty functionaries were generally exempt from conscription. The Vladimir journalist S. Pospolov wrote in February 1919, quote, 
there only needs to be a conscription summons sent to some typist, clerk, accountant, or secretary to provoke howls of protest and hundreds and thousands of certificates and petitions insisting that the person is irreplaceable. End quote. Footnote 41. As we have seen, petty trade and handicraft production also provided a meager livelihood for the many without paid employment. In Voronezh, in summer 1918, there were more than 500 applications to trade in fruit and vegetables. Footnote 42. The intelligentsia was the only elite group to survive the revolution intact, though its self-image was badly shaken. Footnote 43. Most were moderate socialists in sympathy, but the war and revolution had killed any naive belief that they might once have entertained about the innate goodness of the people. Their sense of themselves as the conscience of society, called upon to oppose tyranny and to preserve Russia's heritage, led most to oppose the Bolsheviks. They deplored the strident demagogy of the new rulers, the violence of the mob, the closure of the bourgeois press, and the lawlessness on the streets. Particularly significant, in comparison with other social revolutions, is that students were generally hostile to the revolution, with the overwhelming majority of student organizations remaining resolutely non-party, and secretly sympathetic to the cadets and SRs. The intelligentsia in general, however, had had enough of politics and tried to maintain a neutral stance during the Civil War. Many writers, artists, actors, and musicians moved to the southern cities that were under white control, mainly to the Crimea, but also to Rostov-on-Don, Kiev, Kharkiv, and Tbilisi, all of these being places that managed to sustain a lively cultural life amid the privation. Notwithstanding this, the regime took a pragmatic approach. Anatoly Lunacharsky, head of the Commissariat of Enlightenment, was the Bolshevik leader most sympathetic to the intelligentsia, convinced that they would eventually come over to the revolution. During the Civil War, crippling cold, the threat of starvation, appalling shortages, not least of paper, were facts of life for everyone, artists included. The composer Alexander Grechaninov recalled, quote, My health was undermined to such an extent that I could hardly drag my feet. My hands suffered from frostbite and I could not touch the piano. End quote. Footnote 44. Most intelligentsia were not well paid and had few reserves to fall back on. The collapse of the economy meant that income from performances, writing, teaching, and private patronage all dried up. Simon Dubnov, founder of the Liberal Jewish National Party and author of a 10-volume World History of the Jewish People, wrote in his diary on the 13th of December 1919, quote, I got up early, dressed, got into my overcoat, galoshes, and hat, it was minus 7 degrees in the room, and sat at my writing desk. With numbed fingers, I wrote about the Dominicans and the Inquisition in France in the 13th century. At 10am, I had something to eat, looked at the newspaper, and then went to the firewood department of the district Soviet to receive a warrant for firewood. For two hours, I stood amid the dense mass of unhappy, anxious people 
and, like hundreds of others, came away with nothing. End quote. Footnote 45. Morale, however, was not necessarily as low as this might suggest. In 1920, Nikolai Berdeyev was elected to a professorship in philosophy at Moscow University. Quote, I gave lectures in which I openly with and without hindrance criticized Marxism. End quote. He did not mind having to do obligatory labor. Quote, I did not feel at all depressed and unhappy despite the unaccustomed strain of the pick and shovel on my sedentary muscles. I could not help realizing the justice of my predicament. End quote. Footnote 46. In many ways, the appeal of the Red Cause was as much to regeneration as it was to social class, in particular to urban working class men in their late teens. Youth was a powerful trope in Bolshevik propaganda, which represented young people as the generation that was destined to build communism. The first Congress of the Komsomol, Communist Union of Youth, met in November 1918 and proclaimed, quote, Youth represents the vanguard of the social revolution. Youth is more perceptive and has not been poisoned by the prejudices and ideas of bourgeois society. The adult generation of the working class lived through the horrors of the imperialist war. The war exhausted its strength and sometimes it yields to feelings of fatigue. End quote. Footnote 47. As Lenin told the Third Congress of the Komsomol in October 1920, quote, The generation of those who are now 15 will see a communist society and will itself build this society. You are faced with the task of construction, and you can accomplish that task only by assimilating all modern knowledge, only if you are able to transform communism from cut-and-dried memorized formulas, councils, recipes, prescriptions, and programs into that living reality which gives unity to your immediate work. End quote. Footnote 48. There were many who responded to this rousing call. Following the seizure of power, young men and a few women launched themselves into the struggle for Soviet power, erecting barricades, digging trenches, and setting off to join the Red Army. During the Civil War, the Komsomol recruited between 50,000 and 60,000 into the Red Army and the food detachments. The main focus of its activities, however, lay in political education in clubs and factory schools, and it arranged a broad program of recreational activities, including dramatic, choral, literary, sports, and sewing societies. By 1920, the Komsomol claimed 400,000 members, a not insignificant number, yet it still represented only 2% of eligible youth. Footnote 49. The Komsomol had almost no base in the countryside, and among students in the cities, its influence was extremely limited. In 1919, it was reported that the basic element of school pupils, ha- quote, have no interests or thoughts about matters other than food, end quote. Footnote 50. Soon, there was muttering from low-class youth that young people from middle-class backgrounds were taking advantage of free access to university in order to gain exemption from conscription and compulsory labour service. 
This reminds us that the privileged classes of the old order might have lost much of their property, but they had not lost their cultural capital and social connections. Fighting the Church The Bolsheviks came to power bent on disestablishing and dispossessing the Orthodox Church, which had been a pillar of the old order. Footnote 51 The decree on the separation of church and state of 23rd of January 1918 declared freedom of conscience and the right to practice religion or not, though people did not have the right to refuse civic obligations on religious grants. Schools were taken out of the hands of the church, and religious education in schools was banned. Icons and other images were to be removed from all public buildings, and processions were to be allowed only with the permission of the local Soviet. The practice of religious rituals in state and public institutions was forbidden. Churches were deprived of their status as judicial personages, and thus forbidden to possess property. Legislation in August explained that property that had belonged to the church was to pass into the hands of parish councils. The registration of births, marriages, and deaths was also taken out of the hands of the church and transferred to the Soviets. Footnote 52. The response of the new patriarch, Tikhon, was swift. In January 1918, he pronounced an anathema on the Bolsheviks, warning that they would, quote, burn in hell in the life hereafter, and be cursed for generations. End quote. The ending of financial subventions hit the central and diocesan administrations hard, but made little difference to parish clergy, who depended on parishioners for financial support. During the land redistribution, even the pious took an active part in seizing church lands, but villagers provided local priests with an allotment of land and some financial support. The Bolshevik leadership was largely content to leave ecclesiastical institutions and the network of parish churches intact. The major exceptions were the monasteries. By late 1920, 673 monasteries in the RSFSR had been dissolved and their 1.2 million hectares of land confiscated. In that year, the Commissariat of Justice announced the, quote, painless but full liquidations of the monasteries as chief centres of parasitism, as powerful screws in the exploiting machine of the old grueling classes. End quote. Footnote 53. The Bolsheviks portrayed the clergy as inveterate reactionaries. Posters depicted priests as drunkards and gluttons, monks and nuns as sinister black crows, the faithful as innocent dupes of ruling class lackeys. For their part, a majority of the church hierarchy, appalled at the breakdown of social order, portrayed the Bolsheviks as Christ-haters, German hirelings, Jewish Masonic slave masters, men who led the simple people astray by false promises of worldly bliss. Patriarch Tikhon urged the faithful to resist the Bolsheviks only by spiritual means, but in many areas clergy openly sided with the whites. The scale of opposition on the part of the church to the Bolshevik regime remains unclear. In the Earls, a major zone of civil war conflict, there were 78 cases of resistance to the decree separating church and state, four cases of refusal to hand over church registers, 18 cases of clerics 
giving their blessing to armed actions against the Bolshevik regime, and four cases of clergy active in underground activity. Footnote 54. Estimates of the number of clergy killed across the former empire are contentious. They vary from 827 priests and monks shot in 1918 and 19 in 1919, along with 69 imprisoned, to 3,000 clergy shot and 1,500 punished in 1918 and 1,000 shot and 800 punished in 1919. Footnote 55. Most of these killings were at the hands of the Cheka or sailors and soldiers. Archbishop Andronik of Perm, who had supported Kornilov's coup, met a particularly gruesome death, drowned by the Cheka on the 20th of June 1918, after he called on his clergy to refuse to carry out church services. Although the party program of 1918 called for, quote, systematic anti-religious propaganda to free the masses from their prejudices but without irritating the feelings of others, end quote. Little effort was made to carry out such propaganda during the Civil War. The one exception was the campaign to expose the fraudulence of sacred relics. There were over 60 such cases following the opening of the massive silver coffin of St. Alexander Sversky, which was found to contain not a miraculously preserved body, but a wax effigy. In February 1919, G. I. Petrovsky, the Commissar for Internal Affairs, issued a circular setting out the rationale for such exposures. Quote, In certain places, Workers and peasants have ceased to believe what was drummed into their heads by their former masters, and with their own eyes and hands have examined relics, and, to their understandable surprise, have not found what they expected. In the decorated boxes are large dummies made of wadding, sawdust, and other junk dressed in appropriate costume. The exposure of this ancient deception does not in any way contradict freedom of conscience, and does not contravene any law of the Soviet Republic. On the contrary, malicious and deliberate deceivers of the toilers must be brought to strict judicial account. End quote. Footnote 56. The exposures stirred up much hostility in the laity, and the campaign never had strong backing from the party leadership. The prevailing view inside the RKPB at this time was that the religious belief would wither away once the economic and political foundations of socialism were in place. By the end of the Civil War, the campaign to expose relics had run out of steam, although it revived briefly in the late 1920s. And that is going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find it and lots of other music there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.